a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all we must men discover the power of love, the power, the redemptive power of love. And when we discover that, we will be able to make of this old world a new world. We will be able to make men better. Love is the only way. Expediency asks the question, is it politic? Vanity asks the question, is it popular? But conscience asks the question, is it right? I have some very sad news for all of you, and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight. On April 4th, 1968, as he left to meet with another minister for dinner, the greatest activist in United States history was shot at the balcony of the Lorraine Hotel and died soon thereafter. The man is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It has been 50 years since that fateful night in which the course of the United States changed. And now we ask a simple question as we ponder the life of Dr. King and the world after his death. Are we better or worse than ever? We address that right now. Welcome to Revelations, the panel. the illustrious panel we have one of the most enlightened men that i've ever run across he is the host of appalachian pie and it is a wonderful listen mr blaine kerr well thank you so much for that and wow i've never been called enlightened that that really means a lot and thank you the lone woman on this panel very feisty, extremely determined, but but very intelligent. The host of Who's This Live and Who's This with Captain Ashley, Ashley Sanders. Yo. The man that I am glad to grace his, pro, uh, his project, Chanted City, and the CEO of Hollow Nine Network, Mr. Dave Maresca. Thank you very much. I'm honored to be here. Thanks for the invite, Cole. And the man that I call the most soulful podcast on the planet, the Simply King podcast. This man is one of the most enlightened, intelligent human beings I've ever met. Mr. Rodney Perry, otherwise known as King. You're too much. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, though. And I'm so glad that you all are here to, uh, Give your thoughts on a man and a topic that I find so special and dear. Thank you so much. And we will start with this 
I guess you could say introductory question. How important is Martin Luther King Jr. to you? And if you can, name something that MLK has done that directly affected your life. And I will start with Rodney. Um, before recording, I definitely, you know, made it a point to, you know, establish my age because I feel like, you know, so to make that point of I was never living in a day where this man was alive as well. So it's all these vestiges and things like that, that have um, essentially that I have to experience MLK through other things. Um, the best, and I guess the best and biggest memory of MLK, I guess how he's affected me. I believe that he has provided me a, an example of someone who can be powerful within their speech. I believe I'm a person who uses my voice, uh, who, who has, who has used my voice for so many different reasons. And I think that one thing, that one simple thing is one that is very inspiring, understanding just words and how your voice is one of the strongest weapons and not only weapons, but tools that you can ever possess. And he was a very masterful speaker and a very masterful motivator. And I think that was one of the first inspirations, but he's affected me in a way of knowing that there is this, this interesting, he's a very graceful introduction into just historical racism to me. And I think people always kind of, you know, especially when you're a child, I think that's something that's very, uh, a lot of parents may steer away from, but like with images, like, you know, with his quotes, his books, his speeches, I think it's a way to understand through a positive and then kind of be able to gradually get the negative of what he was talking about. He's a beautiful introduction. If some, you know, a child just goes down any street <laughs> of any, you know, city and see a, who is Martin Luther King and why does he have a street? And I think that conversation is uh, a great introductory conversation of starting with the positive and the heroes who were trying to make things better, introducing what they were trying to change. And I think he's, he's definitely an inspiration in my life and someone who is always someone to draw things from when it comes to having an opinion that you know is right and one that you want to stand by and stand up for. So my MLK is, and I think will forever be uh, a martyr of our just, just human experience. And I think that's why so many people are cling to him. And that's why he's transcended um, to a height that is way past his name, just being on a street and his statue being somewhere in a monument, but truly an American who wanted more for everyone. Well said. <laughs> I agree with everything. Everything you said there, I agree with that. Uh, go ahead, Dave. Um, I, I actually want to echo some of the sentiments that Rodney was bringing up because, um, you know, it, it was probably one of the first times I can remember as a kid when we were learning about MLK and the fact that I, what struck me, you know, was that he was assassinated and that, uh, it really opened your eyes to the the fact that the world of grownups, because, you know, this was like grade school, uh, doesn't, <laughs> doesn't always operate any differently than bullies and, and uh, people who don't know how to express themselves do on the schoolyard. You know, I mean, it was the idea that someone could have an, an idea 
And it was one that seems like it's a very common sense idea. You know, I think it's I think it's harder for children to understand the idea of racism and um, discrimination and blind hatred when we're being introduced to it because it's so counterintuitive. And so then you have this person who's sort of bringing this message that seems like it should be common sense and especially for people who consider themselves, you know, religious and God fearing that um, that the sanctity of life and equality should be something that is a no brainer. And the idea that somebody was killed for this um, really kind of gave me a sense of uh, one, you're going to have to be very brave in this world, especially just being on the side of right doesn't automatically shield you, you know, and so that was something, an interesting concept to be carrying through from a young age is probably why I, I save the things I do sometimes and just kind of let loose with what I'm really thinking. Um, and I try to keep in mind that the people who are brave enough to do that have to be willing to take the risk of whatever that's going to cause as a response. It would be nice if this became a world where the response wouldn't even be considered that it would be a shot heard around the world as opposed to just an opposing view. And I think that's something that uh, learning about Martin Luther King and uh, the sort of uphill battle and the trials and the, the successes he was able to achieve and even you know gave his life for, um, it gives you a sense of, of how really important right and wrong can be. Ashley? Yeah, man, uh, I agree with both of them, actually. And then there's the, he, you know, Martin Luther King taught me what it meant to have a conviction and, like, mm. something that you care so much about. Like, yeah, to have something that you love and, like, passionate. And not only love it, but you love it and you give it to the world. When I was growing up, I had to watch him every year. I would see that passion, and I was like, I need that in life. And that's that's what keeps us going is a passion. So to see somebody just take that passion, elevate it, make change, and then just become, I don't know, a saint, I guess would be the proper word for it, is is so inspirational to me. Blaine. Honestly, I can't be as verbose as everyone else on this. Um, I grew up in a very white area, so I don't know that I can pontificate on that outside of the fact that I do believe the activism alone was something that not only inspired me, but I know that my parents grew to, grew up during that age. And I think it kind of changed my perspective growing up in that more homogenous white culture than perhaps in other areas. Um, that's about all I can add. And, and I totally understand that. Uh, I, I think one of the things that, I loved about MLK is that, and you all have beautifully expressed it already, is that he, he wasn't about one set of people. He was about all. And, mm -hmm. and he was always about wanting to have everybody have their place at the table. And that was the beauty of him. And that's the beauty that still remains to this day. And I, I am glad that we had somebody like him to say, well, my skin may be dark, but I have love for all of you, and I want everybody to receive the same love that 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 is your right to have. It is your right to be loved and to be appreciated for who you are, whether you are the lightest shade or the darkest shade. Mm -hmm. 
you know, it, it doesn't matter. You, you, you deserve to be loved, period. And if I have to go through having dogs sicked on me, if I have to go through having rocks thrown at me, if I have to go through being hosed, if I have to go through jail, which unfortunately he had to endure all of that and then some, mm-hmm. including being spat on, to prove my point, I'll do it. And that to me is what makes him remarkable. Uh, it, it's amazing that you all have mentioned uh, the the scenario of people being put in boxes. And when I think of MLK, I'm thinking, wow, this is a guy who was put in boxes. Yeah, starting when, when he became a prominent, uh, the, the Montgomery boys, uh, bus boycott that happened 60 plus years ago. Now, now, for those who don't know, I mean, this was a scenario where a woman by the name of Rosa Parks was sitting in a place where when you had transit, the front half of the bus was whites only. The, black, the back half of the bus was blacks only. Well, uh, Ms. Parks was too tired. She said, forget it. I'm just going to sit where I can sit. A white person came, asked for her to uh, give a receipt. She didn't. And she was, of course, unfairly banned from being, in bu- uh, being on the bus, which, of course, led to a boycott. To the point where this young man decided to fight the system. Of course, he was jailed. It was a trial. He was convicted and he was thrown in jail. And he actually ran the boycott while in jail. Now, if this same scenario played out today, uh, what do you think the, the outrage, uh, what do you think the result would be from the outrage posed by Americans and who would you see and who could you picture that's in today's, uh, political landscape or even church landscape? Who could be the man or woman in Dr. King's place then? And uh, Blaine, I will start with you with that one. Honestly, um, I don't think that there's one person at this point anymore. I mm-hmm. think we're finally reaching a point in our society where it's all of us. Mm. I think that there has been a turning of the dial. And we're slowly getting to the point where any and all of us are probably going to be the ones that are standing up to this kind of stuff. So, to me, it hmm. Rosa Parks is a history lesson. It's not necessarily something that I believe that we can compare to our lives presently because of the change that we've seen going on. Hmm. Profound. Profound answer. Wow. Ashley. Um, well, first of all, I think if the Montgomery thing would have happened, somebody got the ass whooped. Um, for, straight off the gate, it would have been, this lady's tired, she's not getting up, and I think it wouldn't have gotten that far today. But if it did get that far, the only person I could really see willing to go to jail and make a change probably hasn't even been born yet. Because it seems like these people, it seems like even our leaders are just kind of talking and hitting Twitter. Nobody, very few people are going places anymore. You know what I mean? It, it just, it doesn't seem plausible in this day and age for anything to get that far. But then if it does get that far, that people are going to go. If I'm honest with you. Mm-hmm. It seems like there would just be a Twitter revolution. Yeah. And eventually something would happen, but it wouldn't be a thousand people marching. It'd be a thousand, it'd be 700 million retweets. And then finally, you know, someone would do something. And that's just what I think. I would go there. So maybe me. Well, it's kind of a travesty <laughs> of social media. 
Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know if I completely agree with that, though. I mean, social media has mobilized a lot of movements as well. I mean, we're, we're going to go back to Arab Spring on this one and talk about how, like, it really affected entire landscapes politically of, of other countries. Gotcha. And that just showed the power of being able to communicate with each other. I think there's a certain level where people mm. are becoming comfortable feeling like because they communicated, they did their part. And right. that's yeah. what I keep coming back to the things that we have to look at people like Dr. Martin Luther King for was, okay, it's not just the message. It's then standing up and being part of the message when it's being confronted mm-hmm. with the full brunt of the, the opposition. And that full brunt takes a lot of different forms. And sometimes it is unfair legislation. Sometimes it is cops literally in riot gear walking up your street. And that's the part where we have to get people feeling like um, just because you tweeted, now you have to go out there and stand up and be part of that movement, too. Okay, because that that tweet you made is not stopping those people with the batons from going to the same people that you're talking about supporting and physically beating them down. And you have to if you're going to be in this for an inch, you have to be in it for a mile. That's the whole way. The world is going to change. And that is it. You know, that you cannot be uh, uh, a Monday morning quarterback when it comes to the world around you because this is the world. Whatever happens, we're all going to be part of it. So Mm -hmm. if it's beneficial to you and it's not beneficial to somebody else, it's actually detrimental to somebody else. You have to keep in mind that if you're okay with that, you actually support all the oppression. You support all of it because it doesn't affect you. And if it doesn't affect, if you're not motivated until it affects you, you're part of the problem. You're part of the conversation that hasn't been had yet. And that's some of the things we got to wake people up to. And again, I feel like these are the things that people like Martin Luther King did wake people up to. How did they fall back asleep? You know, like that's, that's part of the issue. I think, I think, um, to say, you know, that's a great, that's a great last point. I think, uh, a lot of people never really fell back to sleep. I think a lot of people just wasn't, they was forever hitting snooze. They hit the alarm and never wanted to wake up because they were content and comfortable in that bed of racism and oppression. But to answer Cole's question, I kind of, you know, am more on agreeing with Blaine. I don't think there is a specific person we need now. Mm. Um, I think there is more of a collective energy that needs to happen. Um, because I feel like that is what can get things done now. I think then there wasn't a, I think those were the first things within those times that you needed. You needed a person to stand up and to show people and to convince people, bring them out of their normalcy and lead those things. But what happened to those people? You know, now that, now that we've put all of our faith and all of the life of this movement and whatever this thing is into a person, they are the symbol, they are the leader. When it comes to neutralizing something that you don't want to support, as in, you know, with COINTELPRO and the CIA and all these different things, as they did with MLK and Malcolm X and all these different, you know, leaders who are fighting for justice, mm-hmm. eliminate them. It will make people, it will suppress this energy that people have, all these, all these thousands and thousands of people feel the way they feel. And it'll make, and it'll not only do that, but it'll make sure that no one else comes after them and try to do the same thing. Mm. So, and which mm-hmm. I feel like has happened today. No one wants to stand. No one wants to kind of get too far ahead and too, you know, too profound and say too much and rock the boat too, too much. But I think what 
is something that, that was hard to stop. And we got that example with the emergence of Black Lives Matter was that, oh, this right here is irritating. This right here is something that they can point out, something that people can claim, something that people can have some sense of, you know, relation to and some type of sense of organization. But you can't take the, you can't take out a movement uh-huh. with just killing a person right. or just trying yeah. to shame. A, a, you can't shame a group and think that that's going to be the thing that works because that's just not how it is. And also, it's probably one of the most American things to do. We literally are. Our lives have been built on a sense of groups and parties and committees. Uh, and those things have been around forever, as long as this country has been around. Councils yeah. and things like that. So to fight oppression and to fight that now more than anything, we need a collective sense mm. of energy. And all those people who have those different types of, you know, advantages within this you know society that we live in have to contribute to that collective. You know, yeah. and that's what you talk about you know, white privilege and how they, you know, can have this perspective and have this access and be in these rooms and already have a seat at the table they've been sitting on to rock the boat. And yes, be able to take that chastisement from the people who don't want to change. And then also you have it from every other angle as well. You have people Mm -hmm. who don't say a thing at all within other communities who kind of just, you know, just really want the world to just get ahead and just kind of focus in on on themselves. We got to reach out. We got to do more. If we want more from the government that, you know, quote unquote, serves us, then we have to force things into movement and we have to do that collectively. So and when you can't pinpoint who is the leader of this, who started this, who's doing this, because the movement is going to always be bigger than the person. I think that's the part that kind of slowed down civil rights. And just the civil rights mm-hmm. movement in general. You take out King, you take out Malcolm, you take out Mega Evers, you take out, you know, Fred Hampton. Fred Hampton. Mm-hmm. And Somebody now we have stopped all this momentum. Mm-hmm. Now all of this, you're going to all just shut up because we can all just kill all of you now. And that, but that's yep. the fear that they've given you. It's like, oh, well, if I stand up or if I try to take this up, I'm next. And I don't want right. to be next. I want to be here for exactly. my family. I want to be able to actually see the fight that I'm getting. So maybe I need to calm down. For those who may know or may not know, uh, Dr. King wrote a letter from a Birmingham jail. And it was in April of 1963. And he basically uh, challenged the, the church leaders to step up their efforts to challenge the wrongs of society. And okay. he basically was seeing some issues with them like what we have discussed now, people who just want to sit on their hands and be stagnant and say, well, really, there's not really much we can do. Well, Dr. King challenged them on that thought process. So thinking about today's church, do you feel the same that that they're doing the same thing as those church as the church did in 1963? Just sit on their hands in terms of uh, the the landscape of today with race and society. Can I start and with if, this? And if you and <laughs> and if and if I was gonna do, say. And, and and if so, what would they need to do to eliminate all kinds of prejudice, prejudices? And it's so funny because I outlined this, figuring that you would say this because I wanted to start with you, Rodney. So yes, you see, how, I love how this you know universe does what it needs to do. The reason why I, <laughs> the reason why I said that is because I you know I grew up in the church and I'm from the South, and I think you know South and religion are you know two things that. When they're talking about just American society, those are you talk about the South and then you talk about, you know, maybe the Mountain West and with Mormons and things like that. 
and Catholics in the East Coast. I believe, and living here in Chicago is what grew, grew me to this ideology, is that there are so many tools that are already in place to uplift and move and progress us forward. You know, speaking specifically about, you know, just every ethnic group, because you have, you know, the Mexican neighborhoods, the Dominican neighborhoods, you have these, you know, black predominant neighborhoods, all these different things. So we have these places where people already are. So improving where they are is great, right? And in a lot of these places, you have what? Churches. These churches being very heavily funded because of the people who go there. You have these mega churches within the South that are doing so many different things and they're providing a service of faith. Yes. But from a standpoint of community building, they're doing it in a degree of, you know, where community service is today. We're going to clean up the street, but we're not going to, it's almost like churches of today is like, it's, the, it's probably one of the best band-aids or the best kind of, you know, curements that we can have for a symptom that they don't want to just fix. And I think mm. churches could like we, we can have these different systems and have these different ministries. where We can bring people in, give them faith and, you know, uplift them, make them be better, you know, try to make them be better people, create these different programs for different types of people. But from a standpoint of actually putting going against power is that galvanizing people us us as a church body of a few thousand what we're going to do today is go out and vote what we're going to do today is go and march instead of this sermon because you've all came here you've all here and you can decide to go home or not but what we're doing today is not actually going to be what we're going to what you thought we we're going to do we're actually going to march down to city hall to this and it may be a local issue but that power and that being so involved, because this is the community who's consistently coming every week, sometimes multiple times a week. And you're not using this power of the people that you've drawn up to make change within your community drastically and not just incrementally. It's like, OK, we can clean up a street. We can you know, help out the homeless. We can do all these things from a very small standpoint. But we need to hit with a force. That is as strong as possible. We need to make people do a little bit more. And I think for the church, the church being so heavily involved with MLK's movement was one one thing that made it very successful. But we have to make people want to do more. And you can't just pray for everything and think it's going to go away. And I think yeah, that's what type of mindset we are in now is that if I just have my faith. And I, if I if I have my faith and I take care of me and my own, then the world is going to be fine. But then once your son is shot in the street, mm-hmm. you're trying to figure out how your prayers didn't protect this from happening. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the point that we need to understand is we do need everyone needs to do more than what they are doing if they don't want it to be them. Yeah. I, yeah, think that's, I think when it comes to churches, you just they have to do more because they already have the system in place to have an impact and a lot of churches have Absolutely. so many people it's ridiculous mm-hmm. but i think what what one of the things that i i love that you said in there is that they have to inspire people to do more and i think they have to inspire people to be 
people and to feel mm-hmm. like full people mm-hmm. and complete completely understand their own perspective. I think that you know, if you're in a group, like if you're in a church and you say, we're going to go out and vote, that doesn't mean we're all voting for the same thing. It means you're mm-hmm. all going to yeah. vote according to what's right. in your heart. I'm not telling you who to vote for, but I'm telling you we're going to go vote. Who you vote for and what you vote for, that's on you. And that's your responsibility in all of this. And I feel mm-hmm. like yes. you already have uh, the church as an environment of inspiration. And I think mm-hmm. that might be as, and, and I will be as a fully admitted outsider of the church. That is a, 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 a perception that we all have is that 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 sort of collectiveness is being channeled into. Okay, we're going to go vote, and everybody's voting for Roy Moore, right? You know what I mean? Like that's the kind of stuff Good where you're like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, that kind of is a little dangerous. What you just mm-hmm. said. Um, so I think there's a certain level of there's a responsibility that even comes with having that much sense of a community. And, and I still think that um, community is super important, but I think we all have to be responsible members of those communities. And Mm -hmm. whether it's your religious community, your social community, whatever community you're considering yourself a part of, it's all about being more than just in name and just parroting back rhetoric. That's what the whole sort of, finding of yourself i think has become now and maybe it's more of a focus on that too i think there was a lot of figure out what you want to do with your life you know for from at least the times i've been alive in the 80s and 90s it was very much hey figure out what you want to do with your own life and now it's like figure out what you stand for you know figure because everything's being challenged and people are losing their lives over it so now it may not be convenient it may not be fun but it's still the world you live in and you have to be part of it and that's kind of how this works Blaine? I think the church. May I offer a different perspective? Always. It was something that I was thinking about also prior to us even having this conversation now. To me, because I know I'm one of the, well, the oldest one on this panel, that Martin Luther King came out of the boomer generation. And that, it's beautiful that he stood up for and did everything that he did to propel us forward at this point. So now we're looking at an Xer like myself or Cole, or even Dave, I believe. I am well. tail end of X. I'm December of 79, so technically I'm part of Generation right. X. So still, we're seeing the movement go forward, and now the millennials are picking it up. So the way I look at it is we're probably still two or three generations out before his message is fully realized. And it's frustrating, but it's part of being that movement. It's part of grabbing hold of that mantle and saying, yes, we agree with what the this guy was saying. Yeah, and, and that perspective is, is enlightening because uh, I, I, I say that in all honesty because we – honestly, we live in a microwave society. We, we need to have everything right now. and. Yeah. <laughs> To think that that this man's death was fifty years ago, and we have seen many pro- we've seen many progressions. Obviously, I mean, having a black man in in, in the Oval, I mean that's that's progression. But uh-huh. we still, you know, but we still are seeing stagnation at the same time. It's frustrating. It's very frustrating. So I I, I agree with your perspective, Blaine. It, it may have to take more generations to see the whole full dream realized and. I won't segue to that just yet. 
And uh, I, I totally agree with you, Rodney. I think I think the church does need to do more. I fully agree with that. Fully agree with that. And Dave, uh, with the <laughs> with the understanding of how church people are considered politically, I have a big issue with that. I have a huge issue with that. A huge issue because you can't paint you can't paint a broad brush with everybody being GOP and going to church. And I, I I'm with you on that. It should be mobilize yourself to do something. Don't mobilize yourself to to vote for a certain person. I am with you on that. I'm with you on that. And I apologize if that came off as uh, in any way insensitive to to churchgoers. Ashley, I think the church needs to look at their leadership. That that is to me, that is the number one thing I see wrong with the church today is they aren't putting people in power because they're anointed by God. They're putting people in power because they can get on a soapbox and speak and inspire. And that's where the church falls short in every aspect. Every church I've ever been to, that's the number one thing that I will always see wrong with the church, is that if you can inspire, you can be a pastor. And I completely wholeheartedly disagree with that. If you can inspire, you can be an inspirational speaker. You have to be anointed to be a pastor. Mm. And, you know, we see it all the time, scandals upon scandals. The reason that the church ain't moving, the reason the church ain't working is because Jesus ain't in the church. And, and, and it keeps people like me, who have read the Bible, who understands what the Bible says, completely out of it. My soul is not going to be caught up in your mess. And you know what? If you want to sit here and preach on Sunday and you want to be a hospital for sinners and be, you know, Saturday sinners, Sunday rede- redeemed, and then give them the bill through a plate, that's absolutely <laughs> fine. But that is not what the hell I'm about. The reason Martin Luther King was a sacrificial lamb was because he was willing to lay down his life just like his Lord and Savior. Can't too many pastors say the same thing. I hear it all the time. We, it's just better if we don't get involved. Well, how can you call yourself a man of God? Because last time I checked, that's like the whole philosophy of the New Testament, you know? Mm-hmm. Laying down your life. Yeah, laying down They're not willing to do that. Sister. They're willing to lay down a, you know, a payment on a Bentley. Or to hmm. do a do a book bag giveaway every so often. Absolutely not. The leadership in the church is the problem. We anoint hmm. people who we, we we call them anointed because they inspire. Listen, I can say a couple words right now and everybody be like, let's move, let's motivate. But behind closed doors, if I'm if I'm womanizing, if I'm you know if, if I'm molesting, if, if I'm doing horrible things, how can I call myself a leader or a person of of God? It, it's just it's such a disconnect. And the whole we're all human. Yeah, that's correct. But as a pastor, you're called to live a little bit better than a human, because you're supposed to. Yeah, it, it's. I mean, and, and you say, "What's?" Well, I think that's the problem with the church. It all starts. It, the captain falls with the ship. If the church is wrong, it's because the pastor's got something going on. Mm. Well, I mean, I I, I fully can <laughs> I, I can fully not disagree with that at all. If I tried. <laughs> I'd be a fool because I mean I've been in many churches where that has happened. You're right. I, I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. You know what's so funny uh, about about this conversation we're having, and I can't. You have to excuse me on on the uh, attribution of this quote, but uh, I th- I can't remember if it was I, I can't remember if it was Malcolm X or somebody else, but it was a man, and he said, "Do you know?" When is the most segregated time of the week in America? Noon, Sunday morning or early afternoon at church. That is your most segregated hour of the week in America. And that's telling. 
That's very telling wow. because, well, you have you have entities of white church and black church that still exist now, you know. So it, it it's a very telling statement, and it's it's true, and 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 that's why I love MLK because he outlined that, and I have a dream. Of course, that's his. Well, for many, that's a shining moment. For me, I think there's more moments that are shining than just this one. But uh, in that shining moment, while he delivered said speech in front of a throng of around 300,000 in Washington. Uh, we talk about the speech. We rarely ever in general mention why they organized, which was actually for freedom and jobs, which <laughs> I mean, 55 years later, we still think that's an issue. But as of today, what parts of his speech have come true for you and what parts have not? And Miss mm. Sanders, I will start with you, ma'am. My favorite thing he ever said was, I have a dream that little black boys and little black girls be holding hands, little white boys and little white girls. Mm-hmm. And he was right. That happened. Mm-hmm. It happened. And, it, and it, it not only happened, I mean, it happened to the point where those little black boys and little black girls were having babies with little white boys and little white girls. And their houses weren't being bombed. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that is the most truthful statement that it, and it's it's not even up for interpretation. You know, it, it's just a full dream that has come true. The one part that obviously has not come true is the most famous part of it. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Not by, you know, the color of your skin, but the content of the character. I'll be <laughs> if the color of my skin don't have nothing to do with everything that happens to me. And people can say it's not true, it's not true, but it, it is. There are times where I've seen people look at me, and it could be possibly because I'm short and I was wearing a hoodie, and looked at Good me point. as if I was trying to steal from them. <laughs> I mean, I went to I went to a restaurant, and I walked by a lady, and she held her purse. And I was, I was like, are you serious? <laughs> Sad. You don't know me. You don't know how much money I have in my pocket. How about I give you $20? <laughs> you know? And I'm like... It, it, and the dream won't come true until people admit that that's exactly what they're doing. Yeah. It's not because you're black. It is because I'm black. I, I know that. You need to you need to just know it for yourself. Oh, it's because of the, it's because you're wearing a hoodie. Okay, but if your son wears a hoodie, is he threatening? If your daughter wears a hoodie, is she threatening? Right. No, because they look like you. It's okay. And, and and I want people to understand. It is okay to have that thought. The problem is that when you have that thought and someone calls you out on it, you need to admit to yourself that that was your thought and then say, you know what, I'm sorry, i got to think about this again. That's the problem. And it won't come true until you get out of that denial that that's not what they're doing. And I would love for the day where someone just says, I don't like you because I don't like the way you talk. (laughs) Like, thank you, because at least it's not because of skin color. Because it's so unfair. It's so unfair, and it's not. It's not okay. So that's my answer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned that. Uh, <laughs> uh, there have been times I've just stood, uh, white stood, uh, stood. <laughs> nothing on me, white, uh, white button-down shirt, tie, khakis, pants, on the street corner, and there's a car that just rolls by. Sees me, stops at the light, and I can audibly hear the door locking. Wow. Oh my God. That's not even a joke. Oh, what the no. I wish I yeah. was. I wish no, that was. No, he's not joking. I wish oh. that was a joke. 
it's oh, amazing God. to me that we still have those types of norms for mm-hmm. other people that mm-hmm. exists. It's, 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 it's utterly mind blowing that we still have that. It's utterly mind blowing to me that here you are, Ashley, a, a, a young black woman who is wearing a hoodie, not to, not to be menacing, but because, uh, I don't know. I happen to be cold. The restaurant <laughs> is a little cold over here. Like you get a little chilly. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, you know, and 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 there's people who would look at you and say, "Well, you know about well, you live in the state where it happened, Ashley, but you know about Trayvon Martin." Uh, yeah, I do, but even with him, it was because he was cold and didn't want to be rained on. It wasn't because he was he was a thug. And 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 it's like you have these people who want you to apologize for wearing something that's supposed to either warm you up or protect you from the elements. And I'm like, uh, no, thank you. No, no she got a jacket on too. You know what I mean? Like, right. I'm confused as to why you're questioning my hoodie when you got a jacket on. Blaine, I guess in all honesty, what has come true is the fact that we are moving forward and we're able to have these discussions, and especially be able to have these discussions more frankly in mm-hmm. this medium. What hasn't come true is kind of, I guess I'll reference back to what I said earlier about the generational thing. We're, we're, we're not there by any means yet, but I think we're really starting to move forward enough and that momentum is building to where we're going to get there. And to me, the one thing about his speech and Ashley referenced it earlier was just black kids and white kids getting along together and all that. And I'm at the end of the day, we teach hate. A kid doesn't yes. know hate. So that, that's where I think my hope is lying at this point. Yeah. And 100% agree. I think, I think we do teach hate. No question about that. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I do think we teach. I mean, that's, that's where you have, uh, I, I feel badly that she was quoted saying this, and I feel badly she didn't think about the implications of saying this, but when you have Oprah saying, the old guard needs to die. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what she's talking about, you know, yeah. where, where you have an environment where Google brings the truth, per se, if you do enough research and, and consult enough sources and use critical thinking to come up with, you know, what you can understand as truth from evidence. But when that's able to be piped directly to a device in your hand and you can have people who've grown up hearing certain rhetoric from older relatives and then see evidence in their hand that that what they've been hearing is actually misguided and not true and they are still then impacted by when they say well hey what about this and you'll have a response like well that's fake news that's liberal media you know i mean it's that where where you still have this thing that you're beholden to because you know if you already have a reverence for your family for your religion you're you're used to trusting authority figures to be giving you the truth well their truth is skewed and now you are suffering from it and and when you've got those neural pathways already so deeply ingrained in your mind you have been corrupted to the point where you will not be open to accepting a truth that could challenge what you have been holding onto. And so that's part of the the thing that I think is hard with this is when, especially to Blaine, you say, 
we're two or three generations away still. I hope that we can ever be a number of generations that is countable because if you still have these old ways of thinking that are being reinforced by people who are, you know, doing what they do, they're rearing you, you're part of their family, they're helping raise you, they're instilling in you that old way of thinking. And that's what we have to find a way for people. And I think that's where I, where maybe some of my uh, earlier comments about becoming more true to yourself, finding out what you truly believe and why. I think that's an area that, um, that is needed. Um, and and I, I, I feel like <laughs> that's a point that gets swallowed up by the fact, well, why is Oprah saying people need to die? It's like, oh, come on, <laughs> because people have been dying already. Let's at least, you know, let's at least acknowledge that and say all lives are important, but that's not supposed to be a derogatory towards a movement that had to remind us that certain lives have not been being considered important for a long time. All right, let's get to the basics. Let's get to, do you believe murder is wrong? Do you believe people have the right to live? You know what I mean? Like, like let's really get down to it and then expand as to why it's affecting the way you see everything else. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing that, that, that people seem to miss the complete boat when it comes to what the BLM is. It, it, it is a reminder that, hey, we're human beings too. Right. Uh, unfortunately, right. unfortunately, there's a system uh, that 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 seems to make us not matter. But uh, yeah, we do, too. Uh, right. But I think we have to put it in front of your face because obviously you all aren't doing anything about it. So. Right. We got to take up the mantle and do it ourselves. And <laughs> and, and, and I mean, I, I agree with you, Dave, 100 percent, 100 percent. It's it's common sense. It's like, uh, yeah. do you believe that this is wrong? Do you believe that seeing someone. Uh, we'll we'll take just one one isolated case. Do you believe that someone who was sitting in the car with his girlfriend and his daughter was just gunned down for no reason by a cop? Do you think that's wrong? If you do, then fine, fight that. If you yeah. don't think that's wrong, do you want to say, well, the cop was when his was was in his right and his life was threatened, although there was no weapon drawn on him? I uh, there's an issue. Yeah. I, and, I, and and I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can get past you in saying, well, yeah, the cop was right, period. And I wash my hands right. of it. I, right. yeah, what can you do with that? That's, that's insane. I mean, yeah, it if, is I insane. Could, if I could, since we're talking about what parts of this we, we feel like have, have uh, stood the test of time and have come true. If, if you guys wouldn't mind, there's a section I actually would like to read that now that I have it up and open in front of me. But I think ahead, we, then. by having this call, are exemplifying this part of the speech. But he says, please. We refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. So we've come in to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. We have also come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fiery urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make the real promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the unlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksand of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice a reality for all of God's children. It would be fatal for the nation to overlook the urgency of that moment. I kind of feel like the now he's talking about is now. And has been now for too long. <laughs> you know, we need to move past that. Now has to be the next step. 
So to me, I feel like we just even on this panel are embodying this part of the speech. And I feel like there are others like us too. And it's, it's, it's a growing thing because of the youth who, you know, and, and I think it's an unrelated issue, but you look at these students from Florida who are taking that mantle of using their voices to affect change. They're responding to a direct threat on their survival, very much in the same way that the speech made by Dr. King is a response to a direct threat on the survival of an entire race of people. And so I think they, they to me, represent a hope that they will hear things like this speech and, and take that message forward. And they are already proving that you can fight the establishment. Um, so, you know, that's, that's, what, that's what I loved about this speech, the inspirational part of it. And I feel like we're seeing it, maybe just have to really realize that that's what we're seeing. And, uh, and I'm hoping that it's going to just keep moving forward. I hope it doesn't take two more generations. I hope we can do this in one more generation, in this generation. Rodney. Um, for me, I think uh, the one thing that has came true from the speech is on the line about, you know, children of, you know, little black boys and, you know, little white, you know, little black boys and black girls and little white boys and white girls um, holding hands. And, you know, and I think that was a sense of camaraderie. And I think what we see now is uh, that I think now is the proof of hate and, you know, bigotry being taught to children because uh-huh. you have the children who are like trying to figure out because they have so many different things that have, you know, kind of happened in their small lives that they question, well, daddy, if you, if I shouldn't like my little black friend, why we got a black president? How is this uh-huh. and that? Yeah. Why are they so bad? I like Beyonce. Uh-huh. Yep. And it challenges. So, so it's a beautiful thing. That's, you know, how progress happens when, you know, great, when profound progress happens, it's kind of hard to regress and to go to an archaic mindset. And I think that's one of the best things that has happened that we now have these things that can happen. Um, the one thing that has not, uh, came true. I agree with Ashley being that, uh, the content of our character um, being the piece about our content of our character being judged by the content of our character. And for me, um, I'm a black man living in America. I have, you know, back length, like down my back uh, locks and you've got to deal with a lot. And I had to do, I had, and it's, it's interesting because I've had to deal with, it internally, you know, from a in ethically internally, from you know, from my own people, I guess you could say, as well as in the outside world, because everyone has a thing to say, everyone has a connotation that they believe in, you know, that they've bought into. Um, saying like I've had from you know professors saying like you know you're you know you know you're a great student this and the third, but you're about to get out of school, you got to join the, you know the workforce and all these different things. This may be a problem for you a lot of companies do not like this look that you have and they have a problem with this and they were trying to quote unquote prepare me for what eventually definitely happened um like i was had i was i would be in interviews where they would 
blatantly just asked me, like, how connected to your hair are you? Oh my Good God. God. What? And wow. to not to not be petty oh. or smart, I wouldn't reply back with, well, it's on my head. So yeah, I'm physically connected to it. <laughs> like, I can't really, help it. I'm sorry. Pretty, pretty big wow. connection, you know? Um, you know I've, why? Had to, I've had to walk out of uh, interviews because I just know where it's going. Uh, sure. A lot of different things. So, you know, the job market is definitely something that uh, because I know it's not me, you know. I've mm. always been very well like, when it comes to interviews. I've been all I've been always awarded and lauded up for my you know speaking skills and being able to express my point and being able to always show you my true skills and under, and make those make sense for what I need to do. So I know it's not me. I know it's not my resume because I'm pairing because I obviously got this call in and got got this. This, this certain situation and have these recommendations as well. So I'm trying to figure out what's the problem here. But it's, uh, to me, what has allowed me to keep my hair this way in this style for so long is because it's a great buffer for people in general. I get so, I get the, I, 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 I you have to be real with me because mm-hmm. I've been in spaces. And I see it. I, I, if it's a new space that I have to come to repeatedly, maybe the work workplace or a project or anything it is, I'm really just waiting on the first person to finally pop and ask me a, a hair question. <laughs> and when they do that, depending on what the question is, they show, they tell me so much about them. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, and that's no matter what your skin color is. Right. I've gotten, I've gotten in so many different ways with you know, people that look just like me would say, hey, Rodney, I usually don't like locks, but they work for you. But, yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Too many times. Yeah. Usually so they're raggedy. Kind of, so it's kind of like, it was like, yours are so neat and clean. And yeah. That's dirt. And, and then when it comes to when people of another race may ask me things, it comes from a place of ignorance. Well, so is it your hair? Yes. Well, so is how do you do that? Your hair and all these different <laughs> things. So now we're having a conversation about my hair, which I don't mind educating you on because I don't want you to continue to be this ignorant. But what I but it's a microaggression that I deal with so often. And the fact of the matter is, is that this isn't a conversation that everyone has. Like unless unless there's something unless there you want to know where I've gotten it done, that should be the only time we should really talk about. You know, or where did you get these jewels that you have in it? I need some for myself. Yeah. I think, you know, and I, I've always battled with people when it came to, you know, that opinion. And they, and they always say the, the same script. Well, you know, it's just not professional. Well, you know, you know what? Let's talk about that. <laughs> because when you say that, right, when you're talking about professional, when we're talking about profession, that means be professional is having everything required to do said position, said occupation. Right. I work at a desk. And so I'm not building a house. I'm not working with machinery. With my, with my long hair, or I'm not in the army. Where my long hair may be dangerous to myself or someone else. I'm literally sitting at a desk typing on a computer, hmm. communicating with people through email. But yet, 
our clients may have a problem with it. You see what mm. I'm saying? And I think it points out what you really what the what the real issue is. And it's way mm-hmm. and it's way more singular and way more subjective than objective. They try to make it, they try to blame it on this objective sense of what they feel like the connotation of having this hair is. My hair is not distracting. It may distract you, but my hair is not distracting. It doesn't bring, it doesn't stop the whole room, make the whole room stop and ask me questions. It doesn't do any of those things. I do not disrupt the workplace. It does not do anything to not be able to do the job. Everything I've yet another act of extinction. You see what I'm saying? So I think for me, yeah. for me, it's it's that's the one thing that I wish would you know really just go away. Of course, um, for me to be judged by what I know I my ability is and the type of person that I am. But the thing about it is, I'm not going to change that because no one in this world is ever being brought into a interview. And you're saying, okay, so your haircut, it kind of don't work. And we need you to do something else because it just doesn't work. Mm. You get that, right? That makes sense, right? You know? And I think it's just another way of controlling people to make people, to keep people in this very, in this very interesting, keeping the normalcy, keeping control, keeping pushing up these systems in place. So if you're a black woman with natural hair, you need to do something about that. If you're a white man with long hair and a beard, you need to do something about that. Or even I think that's the thing that people don't think about. But it's I even I challenge you know my friends, my friend, my my friends who my quote unquote white friends. I challenge them all the time. It's like, do you ever think about like you like having a beard and they but they make you quote unquote they say you need to be more conservative, so you need to take that away. How does your beard affect? You the job that you do. Can you still effectively communicate? Can you still think and critically think and make decisions? All those things. Does your because you don't you go home and you're you. You're not going home and still on the job. And you some people, I guess they are, but even still, how in the world does hair on your face affect this email that you just had to send? Yeah, it's it's amazing how stereotypes can just bleed into every aspect of life, and 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 you're not taken for face value. And it's like, yeah, you see me here. Yeah, I may look a way that you probably don't expect, but uh, there's a reason why I'm here. If you can't see it or hear it, uh, I'm sorry for you, but there is a reason why I'm here, and. And I don't have to be looked upon with disrespect because of it. And I am so glad that MLK addressed that. It's like, uh, yep. there has to be a time of one day just because we're human. That should be good enough. Not because I'm black, not because I have long hair, or short hair, not because my hair is nappy or straight that I am accepted. I'm accepted because this is the, this is how God created me, how God fashioned me, how God shaped me. And I'm here. And if I'm good enough for God, I should be good enough for you. And if I'm not good enough for you, there's a problem. (sighs) Here's a question I want to ask you guys. So we all talk about Martin Luther King being universally beloved, at least definitely in this country, he's beloved. But two years before his death, uh, Americans were polled by Gallup. And he had an unapproval rating, unapproval rating of 63%. Now, 
seemingly today we're we're witnessing similar struggles with someone who hasn't quite gone MLK level with his with his uh his fight, but has received a little bit of brushback from political figures in Colin Kaepernick. So why do you believe a man or woman who silently or nonviolently protests something that is unjust? Why do you think they draw so much friction, hatred, and opposition from so many people? And Dave, I will let you begin this one. <laughs> like you probably could feel me foaming at the mouth. I'm like, ah, it's because of hatred. <laughs> it's because of hypocrisy. I mean, um, I don't know. I think one of the things that we've been able to study about our species from the beginning is that whenever there's something that se- separates itself from the herd of people who've all come to this conclusion, whether they've come to it for themselves or, oh, my dad says this is how we believe, so that's what I think. Um, there's always been a fear response to the person or the, you know, the first, you know, early man that was between uh, us and whatever we were before we evolved. The first time they started using tools, the other guys ganged up on them and killed them. You know what I mean? There was always a an immediate like, oh, it's different. We got to kill it, kill it, kill it. We can't allow the difference to infect what we have already um, uniformed over here. And so I feel like this is a much milder version of that. And and again, I think it goes right to the example that's glaring right now is you have these kids standing up to speak about gun control and the, the insanity going on with kids being killed. And there are adults, grown adults, who want to be respected as grown adults participating in smear campaigns across social media and the media itself. And you sit there and think to yourself, these are kids who survived a horrific situation and your response is to come up with far-reaching, fabricated, illegitimate misinformation to make people stop listening to them. And that is, I think, an extension of this sort of the only way to stop this thing that could very well be true if we were even open-minded enough to do some research and look past our own, you know, uh, uh, prejudices. So the only way to stop that, again, it's why they killed MLK. It's like we have to just stop the source. We have to stop the source of that opposing view. And everyone else will just fall right into line with following lockstep with what we've got already in place. And and I think it's sad that um, we have to identify that, that that's not something easy to recognize, or at least can be posited that it's not easy to recognize. I tend to feel that people use that as an excuse a lot of the time. Oh, yeah, I just didn't notice it. Really? Yeah, you just didn't notice it. Okay, but I bet you if the guns were pointed at you, you'd probably notice it. So there's there's an activity going on where you're actively not noticing it. And so, um, yeah, it's it's a fear thing and it's a comfort thing and it's a, an inability to find any other way to respond. So you just respond in, in a violent, get it away, kill it, make it stop so I can go back to feeling comfortable kind of way. That's what those might be saying. Oh, and a powerful two cents it is. <laughs> it's probably worth 10 instead of 10. <laughs> <laughs> probably I want to sell so. myself short. <laughs> right. Ashley? Um, it's kind of like that whole when you're arguing with someone or you're not arguing, you're like debating with someone and you run out of, uh, you run out, you, they're right. And so you just go, you're stupid. 
It's like called an ad hominem attack. You know what I mean? It's like, you're dumb. <laughs> and, and then everybody who thinks like you goes, you know what? They're dumb. They're idiots. Why are we even listening to this argument? So rather than, you know, actually listening to this human, we go and devalue this human because this person sees a problem and not only are they willing to take a knee, I guess, but they're willing to take a knee um, at a national game. And not only are they willing to do that, they're willing to risk millions and millions of dollars of their contract in order to do it. So clearly there is an issue. But instead of saying, you know what, this person might actually be on to something, we're going to just call him all kinds of names and make him the worst. We're going to paint him as a criminal. Mm-hmm. Rather than just saying, let's just listen to him. Maybe he's on to something. Because you'll hear people say, I don't care what he had to do. He shouldn't have done it during the national anthem. Well, what the heck? When should he have done it? In the middle it certainly of the got your attention, didn't it? <laughs> right? Certainly got You're your talking attention. about it. There you go. And, <laughs> and then when people, when people talk about it, and people say, well, he's kind of right, then it's, you must not be American. No, 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 no. Yeah. Quite the opposite, actually. I'm so American, I realize what's wrong with America. <laughs> And I'm so proud of my country, and I love my country so much that I don't want my country to be a part of this nonsense. So I'm going to speak up against it. Mm, Because it's just kind of like if you raise your kid, you raise a teenager, you don't have to be a cool parent. You have to be a stern parent. You're a better parent if you don't let your kid drink with you. So you're a better American if you don't drink the Mm Kool-Aid. And, you know, (laughs) it's that kind of concept. It go, again goes back to knowing yourself. Are you a parent or are you your kid's friend? Or, yeah, <laughs> you know? Are you a friend? Are you are you being a responsible adult or are you falling in with a bunch of uh, what your <laughs> yeah, friends are Yeah, are you the mom for mean girl or... <laughs> It's always easier yeah. to just jump and be part of the group. It's very difficult to stand on your own. And I think that's something else we should always be taking from Martin Luther King. If he did it, he inspired others to stand with him. But look, he still got shot for it. He stood. Yeah knowing that that was a possibility. And that's yeah. a level a lot of people uh, may not be willing to go to, even if they're very strong when they're delivering the rhetoric, you know? Um, so it always Thanks comes down to the end. point, Dave. Oh, <laughs> man, I'm sorry, man. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> well, 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 go ahead and, and go further with your point. <laughs> no, go right ahead, Dave. Give it, give it to us in, your, in the Appalachian way, man. Give, give, me, give me the Appalachian <laughs> version of what in, I just in said. In the what way? And Appalachian. Appalachian. <laughs> I apologize. I know not, I compounded my error by mispronouncing your own. <laughs> I do think, considering the times that he was in and everything, he was well aware of the fact that he was going to be the target eventually. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And, and for that in and of itself, you have to respect the man forgetting all of his flaws i mean i know he was a human like all of us were and he was not the best family man person in general but what he has given us as a society to try to strive for is what i honestly think is a beautiful thing and yeah he took a bullet for it so now it's up to us to carry that legacy forward and honestly, how is that not living ultimately like Christ, right? You know, I mean, living right into, 
his role as a minister and he, he was willing to die for us. <laughs> I'm willing to die for this. You know, it's, it's not a far cry. And he legitimately for other, died for our sins. Like, for other folks, I hate to say it like that, but like, and pretty for much other did. people, people <laughs> who claim to be, you know, church going and God fearing, how am I seeing this more than you are? And I've already said I'm not a church goer. You know what I mean? And those are the things that need to be addressed. Those are the things that can't be allowed to just slide by anymore. And and it's a big deal. It's it's an important part of this. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It it, it is. It, it it is. Just uh not grasping the the aspect of uh you you're you're addressing a wrong you're addressing a slight mm-hmm. and the price for addressing the slight is either well on the negative st- scale thankfully just verbal derision but possibly <laughs> like you address blaine it, it could result in death because i'm saying okay this country's great but there's issues with this country and it harkens back to what uh, James Baldwin said, and I love this quote because I, I, I believe it wholeheartedly. He said, I love America more than any other country in this world, and it is for that reason that I reserve the right to perpetually criticize her. Mm. And it is the love of saying, okay, this country is great, but man, there's some faults. And because there are faults. I believe that it needs to be addressed. And these are the faults that I believe it needs to be addressed. And there shouldn't be a problem that, that we have this utopic view of America saying, Oh, you know, okay. So I'm, I'm kneeling for the, I'm kneeling during the national anthem. Uh, okay. Uh, I'm not bringing the attention to myself. This is something that I'm silently doing myself, but why is it all of a sudden the, blind patriotism that gets assigned to this instead of okay well why are you kneeling what what's what's the reason and what can we do to help you you know you know that was rarely ever asked and i've heard it asked but it was rarely ever asked of of colin and it was just Mm. it was appalling to me that that wasn't asked and and I, i i look at him in a in a small window in terms of what MLK did, because I get the feeling that in a larger scale, the same thing happened with him, you know, and, and, you know, it's like, okay. Oh, okay. That Negro preacher is marching again. Yeah. Oh, great. Okay. Mm -hmm. We're past the dinner. Yeah. Yeah. I totally see that. Yeah. Oh, this Negro is talking about wanting to bond with, with uh, whites and black people. Yeah. Lord, speak about speak about bigger issues. Yeah, uh, how about the Soviets? Yeah, yeah, you know, that that type of stuff. And it just it's it 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 grates my nerves that I'm seeing history repeat itself in this room. Uh, Rodney, um, I think um, you've always got to bring down people who've done so much with um the negatives that they you know came with as well. I think uh. You definitely, he definitely, he's gonna, he's gonna deal with his own short, like MLK is what I'm talking about. Deal with his own shortcomings on his own. Mm-hmm. Especially, you know, you talk about just, you know, the history of him being womanizer and all that jazz. And I think it's something that, yes, that's a conversation we can have. Yes, that's something that should not be ignored. And that comes with the whole person. Right. Um, 
but I think that we are so quickly, we so quickly like forget just the duality of just being human and just being like with, with extraordinary good, extraordinary good, there's going to be a flaw. Everyone's flawed in some way, some way, shape or form. And this man fell short of his attention, fell short of all these things that he, he grew to be. And now he can't control his damn self. Um, and respect his, you know, respect his marriage and respect his wife and all these things. And yes, he can be judged on all of that. And I think that's what make what you can question that he may be polarizing for that reason. But I don't think um, the message that he was giving and the movement, because he was just a speaker for the movement. He was not the movement itself. Right. And I think that's the point that you have to make the separation. Yes, his name may be on, you know, every street in every major city. Even in smaller cities, but the simple fact of the matter is, and that's the problem, is that if we defame him and we dethrone MLK, then that means this movement must have been flawed as well. But it wasn't, and I think that's the part of why they, you know, push that out and try to make that a thing, and still to this day try to make that a thing. But it's like, and you know, what? he was just a man who was speaking that, and we enjoyed him speaking. But right. the fact of the matter is, is that there were people galvanizing, coming together, listening to a message that they were hearing and being inspired to do something. That is the part that's the most important. And regardless, because he wasn't the only one saying a lot of these things. He wasn't the only orator of this freedom. So I think he was just the most prominent of them all. So is that now you have Colin Kaepernick who, you know, and this is the exact, you know, episode that me and Cole worked on together. And I did a one even a year prior to when it first when he first you know started to take a knee, and I believe that you know it's you know I guess it, it's sad to a certain degree, and I, but I think you know I personally rather have truth and rather have people you know complaining about what's real and fighting for what's real than somebody just kind of like standing by. And like yes, it's upset me that you know so many NFL players who really don't support. Colin and all these different things. But I'd rather have, I'd rather me know that this person I've been supporting for years is not, does not have the same mindset as me. And for me to just be like, okay, cool. So I guess I'm not a Steelers fan. I'm not of this. I'm not of that. And I would do that with anyone that I can't align myself with. It's just like, I can't separate certain things. Certain things I can separate, you know, art and whatever, whatever. That's just what you did and that's what it is. But when it comes to a person who is being blackballed and being done doing all these things for doing something that's not even just racially, but just for everyone, mm. and you're gonna attack him for that, but because the matter because it's the way he's doing the manner in which he's doing it, and historically people who do these things are black. You're going to associate this whole thing with blackness. You're going to say all these different things, but it's like, this is an injustice. Police do mm. need to do better. Police do need to do these certain things. Uh, police are killing a lot of, a lot of people. Yeah. And not just proportionately black. black people. Right. So of course we're going to say something, but it doesn't have to be us. The only ones to say something. Right. right. Is it injustice or is it not? And I think, uh, Colin gets a lot of, you know, steam for it for sure. But I, I, I got the message immediately. And I think it was interesting because there were so many people who had issues with 
it's form of protest. And I think... Well, I think he proved his point when yes. all of the other people started reacting to it. He, he, proved, he proved it very vividly. And for yeah. me, I've had conversations with people of, you know, of various races about this very thing. And they, you know, a few of them had something to say about, like, well, I think he just, just approached it differently. And I think for me, in that moment, and the reason why Colin Kaepernick is has grown to be this, you know, martyr for this type of thing, putting his own livelihood on the line is because you have done, you've challenged the very thing that everyone, that a lot of people bought into. And that is that this flag represents liberty and freedom when it doesn't. Mm. And the fact that you, and the fact, or it's not for everybody, but even still, I'm, I'm come from an ideology that even white people who quote unquote are called, you know, deplorables or just white people in general, Still are not living a true freedom either. Mm. They are given this. They are given this very blind, very this slight piece of the pie off of association. Hence, you know why I said earlier about whiteness. So, because you are white, you're going to benefit from this thing, but you really can just you know not have nothing at all as well. And we, yeah, and it, it it's funny that. Uh, there was a issue with with those who took umbrage with how uh, Colin uh, did his protest. I remember uh, Clemson's football head coach Dabble Sweeney said, "Well, why didn't he do it just like how Martin Luther King did it?" Uh, okay, I'm well, he got he, shot. Yeah, I, mm-hmm, <laughs> and that was the that's the immediate thought I had. I was like, "Okay, you go back almost fifty years, uh, you would see how that ended up." So you have a kumbaya understanding of Dr. King now. But I'd put your same self 50 years prior and your thought process would be totally different. Mm. Yep. You know, because you would think this is a race baiter. This is a a problem stirrer, not not a guy who is the drum major for justice. You would look at him as as an issue, just like you look at this football player. You look at him as an issue, you know. So, yeah, I agree with you. Uh, It's amazing how. The the concept of remembrance with what this guy stood for is getting more and more lost in the shuffle. What I what I've been seeing after his death, uh, of course, immediately after his death, we saw many neighborhoods burn to the ground, and for many, that seemed to be when hope died. You know, April fourth, nineteen sixty eight, seemed to be the night when hope for many people in America died, and it seems to have carried on to even now in certain aspects. Mm-hmm. I think the question I want to pose now to you guys, are we closer to seeing true freedom in America or are we still seeing our neighborhoods metaphorically burn to the ground from apathy, hatred, and intolerance? It's like a 50-50 kind of deal. It, it, it's almost like we're, uh, we're seeing our we're see- progress is almost becoming like unforeseeable you don't even know i can't even answer if we're if we're seeing progress because i'm not sure i mean yeah technically like technical standards but then it's like okay now we don't have to worry about walking alongside people of our age now we have to worry about them shooting us and them being in places of power to where they can do that you know what i mean like and it's not that it's not that it didn't happen then because it absolutely happened but now there are so many loopholes and so many background checks and there's so many reasons and it, it, it's almost like, yeah, we are progressive, and yeah, we're moving forward. But like, 
our neighborhoods aren't burning down anymore because people are coming in and shooting them. They're burning down because we're so angry, we're tearing them up. Mm. Like, I don't even know how to answer that question because it's just it's a difficult one when it comes to the concept of progress. Technically, yes, but we still got ways and ways and ways to go, man. I agree. <laughs> I do agree. Uh, Rodney? Um, I think the best way that I can answer this is um, by saying um, no. Um, and the only reason why I say no is for the simple fact of um, we've re- replaced, you know, old issues that may have seemed to be diminished with new problems, you know, from, you know, just the food that we eat and so many different things and um, just new for, new systems to keep control of people. So it's like, okay, we got rid of slavery, so I may not literally be in bondage as we speak. But with so many different systems, well, me specifically, because there still is a form of slavery being, you know, mass incarceration. So these, there's vestiges of these things that we say we've progressed from. that are still very active. And that's why I think I, I don't want to, you know, say, I guess, be 50-50 or anything about it is because it's kind of like these things still exist. These things are well, well-oiled machines that are still working. Do I have hope and faith that we are actively doing, that people, there are people actively doing things to fight this? Yes, I do believe that. Um, and those, and that is what I can profoundly say yes on. So we are, we haven't progressed far because we've replaced old things with new demons, but, um, but I do believe we will, there will be a change. Dave. Well, I'm, I'm actually going to echo what Rodney said, and I'm glad somebody said no, because, um, I think. Uh, which probably on my part even betrays a bit of white privilege, to be honest with you. I think there was a time where we all collectively thought we had made progress. You know, I think there's been a lot of lip service, and I think um, the only thing we could take... Oh, lip service, good call. Sorry. <laughs> I th- and, well, I mean, I think that well, what we can take from that is that that's the beginning. You know, like, lip service is always where it starts, and then somebody, and I'm pointing to kids like the, these kids from Parkland in Florida, and and anybody who's ever organized a march and kept it peaceful, uh, it's it's these people saying, look, promises have been made, and we're the ones that they've been made to, and we know for a fact that they're not being kept. Meanwhile, you're sitting there and pontificating and creating rhetoric and acting as if you've already done enough. And so what I think where we're at is we're at the point where people have been putting lip service to issues and people have been trying to make these gestures. And I think what we have now is at least the beginning of the uh, emergence of a generation that is going to make people keep the promise. They're going to cash the check. They're the ones who are saying, we believe there are funds in the bank of justice and we are going to cash the check. And if you're going to tell us that there aren't, we're going to have you fired as the bank manager. We're going to make sure that the truth will out. And so I think that's where my uh, hope and inspiration is now is that um, we haven't made the progress we all thought we did. And I think it's, it's too obvious to ignore anymore. And maybe our current political climb 
if that's a silver lining we could take from it is to show us that we all have a lot of work still left to do. Um, but I've never given up on the hope that it's possible. And I, and I think it's going to take these kinds of voices, our voices, the voices of these young people who are tired of listening to the lies and being told that we have to accept them, um, that we're going to get there. But I don't think we've made enough progress. I don't think we've made a lot of progress. If lip service is phase one, we've been in phase one for a couple decades now. It's time to move to phase two. Mm. That's some powerful words there, Dave. I, I, I appreciate that and I agree with you. Blank. Well, thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> Blank. Well, I'm definitely not the person that uh, you should probably be speaking to about this because, yes, I agree lip service. And I still hold to my point that I think we're still a couple of generations away. And the reason I say that, and I don't like to get political, but I understand the climate that we're in. And all. So we have to take the steps that we can, where we can, and if we can. And it's a personal decision for every individual. At the end of the day, we're all still humans, we're all still members of this planet, whether it has any bearing on religion or politics I don't believe it we're one and eventually we'll get there but it's going to take some time so hmm. wow what a powerful way to end and I will I will conclude with these thoughts quote well I don't know what will happen now We've got, We've some, got difficult some difficult days, days ahead. ahead, but it doesn't matter with But it me really now. doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. Because I've been to the mountaintop. <laughs> I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Is the world better since Martin Luther King Jr.'s death? It's hard to say that it is even 50 years later. But people will probably say there are some strides. I mean, 10 years ago, we elected our first non-Caucasian president. And that's the biggest of strides. But when you have incidents like those who are citizens of this country unarmed and they get killed and charges are not brought upon authorities because of the fact that unarmed people are dying legally, it makes you say it really hasn't changed all that much. The oppression and the racism and the prejudice just looks different now. It isn't so overt, it's covert. 
So if you were to pose that question to me, are we better or worse? I would say we're both. And it's unfortunate that it's both. But maybe it has to be both because that's what MLK wanted us to do. He wanted us to be challenged with changing the world. <laughs> and that's hopefully what we all are about the business of doing. Many thanks to Rodney, Ashley, Dave, and Blaine. And you can check out Appalachian Pie. And you can check out Who's This Live. You can check out Tangent City on MileHighRadio.com. And you can check out the Simply King podcast on SoundCloud. For changing the world one conversation at a time, I'm Cole Johnson. And this has been a special presentation of Revelations. For more on Revelations, go to Pippa, spelled P-I-P-P-A dot I-O, and MileHighRadio.com, spelled M-I-L-E-H-I-R-A-D-I-O. Every Saturday, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific.